welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSB Magazine. You're listening to a new The Hacker Factory podcast with hacker maker, Philip Wiley. You're about to discover what the role of a professional hacker entails, the different specializations it holds, and what it takes to learn and become one. Enjoy the conversation as Philip and guests unveil the secrets of professional hacking, a mysterious, intriguing, and often misunderstood occupation. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Hacker Factory Podcast. Today I'm happy to have Joe Vest on. Joe Vest has a really cool background and I got to meet him last year during SpectreOps Red uh, Team training in Virginia. So I was really excited that he offered to be on the show. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Joe. Would you uh, tell the listeners about yourself? Oh, sure. Thanks, Philip, for having me. Um, again, my name is Joe Vest. Um, the quick um, background is I've been doing IT and security for about 20 years now and uh, done all sorts of jobs in that time. Currently, I am the uh, technical director at Help Systems for the Cobalt Strike Project. And a few things I've done over my career that I was ex uh, excited about was uh, I was an author for a SANS, the first SANS red teaming course. Ultimately left that, turned that into a book, Red Team Development Operations. So uh, I guess technically I'm an author now. And um, enjoyed a lot of my career with teaching and uh, helping mentor students to, throughout a lot of this as I'm doing the hands-on technical side. So that's, a, that's the quick background I have. Yeah, so you've got to work some really cool places too because you'd worked at Spectrops. So how was that? What was that like? Oh, that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, Spectre Ops is, you know, there's there's a, a lot of these. I'll call them the boutique companies that a lot of the really uh, good, prominent people in the security industry um, have come together to do some really, really great work. So working out there was really, really amazing. Um, while I was there, um, I was acting as a technical, or, or I'm sorry, a, uh, the training director. So really overseeing a lot of their training courses. You mentioned uh, the training course that you uh, took for the red team. Well, they have a few of those, so I was running a lot of their training side to actually help deliver a lot of that that pieces. But that was definitely a uh, much further along in my career where I could jump in and uh, help with a you know fledgling company try to grow and become um, what they are doing now today. So that was, that was a fun time. I bet so. It's, it was cool to get to meet you last year because you're like one of the few people that I got to meet last year due to the pandemic because I was able to get to a couple, couple events before things yeah. started shutting down. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was uh it's been strange with it still, but uh, you know, we've been trying the virtual conference piece and, and it's been doing what working well. I mean, I spoke at wild west hacking fest recently and I would have to say um, that was one of the most enjoyable remote conferences I've been to. They did an amazing job. So actually I got to feel like it was almost a real engaging conversation virtually um, so that, that was actually really, really interesting to see, or we've just been away from people so long that just that little bit of engagement feels okay. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. Thanks to black Hills for really getting 
laying the framework for virtual conferences because you know they were one of the first ones to mm -hmm. to really set that up using Discord. So there was some sort of community to go along with uh, you know streaming oh, yeah. talks and stuff. It was really interesting to see how we could actually engage, um, even though I could not physically see an audience. But uh, but that was that was that was really really a lot of fun. So with that, I do really enjoy getting out speaking and and, and teaching, and uh, it's helped me push myself to under, to understanding. Um, to different levels of understanding so that I can I know what I'm talking about or, or challenge myself in the sense that if I can help someone else move forward on this, that means I've at least established some sort of background and knowledge information of, of some opinion about, a, uh, about something. So teaching has been a really, really good outlet for me to learn. I, sometimes I feel like I learn more than the students, and that may sound cliche, but it is really, really true because it's challenging to stand up in front of someone with confidence and to deliver quality information that that's really really tough very cool that's this is a good audience for that too because a lot of the people that listen are, are people just getting started out so you have this really cool career and uh, why don't you share with the uh, listeners how you got started <laughs> so uh early days um i was at a community college kind of started at that time frame um did not really know what i was doing i, I bounced around several careers uh I in total, I think I went to five different colleges that I would drop out of most of them because I was trying to, you know, early days, find myself, figure out what's going on, whether I was playing, you know, bass in like jazz band or I was trying to go to school to be a meteorologist. I looked at that. I was going to be a forest ranger, had a full ride scholarship to be a forest ranger. And then the day of like getting books, I said, yeah, this is not really what I want to do. And I dropped out. So this is the kind of things you think of when you're in your, your you know, young 20s trying to figure out what you're doing you just do weird things but i was going to become an herbalist a natural medicine person all of these things were going along um ultimately through life and things i, I was living in florida at the time i wound up moving up to alabama where some family were and uh living and working and i was working at a distribution center for walmart driving a forklift and that was my that's what i was doing um i eventually found while going through various colleges i found a um, technical school and this was in the 95, 96 timeframe or so. And um, I went and they had a two-year program and I did this and, and I actually found I loved it. I was like, oh, technology is really, really interesting. I really didn't ever explore this before. And it drove me into uh, finishing this technical school, not like a regular normal four-year school. But at the time, you're talking pre-Y2K. The dot-com boom was really starting to get ramped up. So you're looking at a good time to get into technology, not unlike what we're seeing today. Um, so you saw this. So there's opportunity and it just fit. And I just had a knack for this. This was really, really, uh, and, and I'm not you know, tooting my own horn, but I see a lot of people go to technical schools and I only see a small percentage who actually apply themselves to make something valuable. And this hit me perfectly. And I just excelled at that. Went down to school, started to do my whole MCSE, Microsoft Certification Route. And uh, after that was done, I quit school and I got a job and I went down the sysadmin route and I start, you know, I thought I really knew what I was doing and I was like, oh, I could I kick butt in school. But then I reality hits me and you start to see how this works. And, and I start to work in, in the real world and solving, you know, problems. That's what you do in IT. You're not really technical per se. Um, and you're actually solving problems. And that was something I had to learn early on was like, okay, I'm, I might be fixing these printers. I might be writing code to make the network more efficient, but none of that mattered. 
And this was all about, um, you know, solving people's problems. So I was working on that for a while. And during this time, I was working in an accounting firm. I was there for about seven years. Um, the CFO took me aside because I thought I was doing all these great things from a technical perspective. And I got slapped with reality on what the business world thought about IT. And again, this is not much different today, but he said, you know, when I look at this, I look at you as a water company or the power company. It's either on or off. If it's all working, I don't notice you. And that's fine. But you can't have better water or better power that you're delivering. And that was the opinion that this, uh, the CFO took of what we did. And at that point, I changed everything I was working on. And I tried to apply technical pieces to some business case. And we always talk about that. But when you actually see that and it comes into uh, reality that you, you can uh, internalize that, it makes a huge difference. Because now at this time, um, I took ownership of at the, at the paperless project. So during these times, there was a huge transition from paper-driven workflows to digital workflows. And it seems strange to think that that happened. But yeah, there was a time when the whole concept of paperless was a fad and we were trying to figure out how to do this. And I took that as an ownership. So to solve a business problem versus a technical problem. And although I disagree today for that CFO that, that you can have higher quality delivery of technical things, the opinion of the one that mattered in this case, he mattered on this counts. So although whether they're right or wrong, those opinions really, really do influence how you're viewed and how your career might be um, driven around you. So you really have to understand that business case. So that changed things completely, uh, which actually made me want to leave that company. Not that I, I really love the organization, but I, I hit a plateau. And what I also learned, unfortunately, in the world is uh, it's hard to grow within your own companies, and sometimes you have to leave. Um, for some reason, we as humans value bringing a new person in at a different level versus promoting internally promotions and moving internally is really slow. And it's just something you learn. And I, I wish it wasn't the case, but more people gain better jobs and careers by moving and leaving an organization and staying internally. Um, it's just something that I have seen. So uh, I didn't learn that till later, but um, so I did this. And during this time, while I was out there, uh, going through this, changing into this project management technical role. Um, I also went to various conferences and I learned about this thing called the CISSP, which sounds strange because I did not separate security from IT. Uh, my job was all things technical, whether it was the firewall configuration, server configuration, user administration, printers, all of the things. So from this IT hat, um, I did everything. Now, it doesn't. I did poorly, to be honest, like to do all of them. So the whole jack of all trades and master of none was really defined my early career. But I was really, really good, had a really good knack at solving those problems. It doesn't mean I did it uh, securely by any means. Anyways, I saw this person with the CISP and I really thought it was amazing. I was like, this is really interesting. Like, this is a security thing. And I started, I started learning about security testing, pen testing. That's, that's a job. So I actually took nine months to learn the CISP material. I didn't do any boot camps or anything. I really wanted to learn and dig this. And um, I went and eventually took the test. And to be honest, I was very disappointed. I was like, oh, this is, I really made this out to be a big deal. And it was not really as big of a deal as I thought. But I really, really dug into this and I did it what I call the right way. So I don't think it was a waste of time because that shifted my mindset over to security by utilizing that certification as a jumping point. And then I could retro 
actively look and say, well, let me really put it in its place. It wasn't a maximum. It was a good little one little bar to jump over. But what it let me do was sort of get my thought process down on how I want to move forward. because I was doing all this IT and I actually looked at uh, other career paths. Like, how do I do this? Like, how do I change? Because I had no experience. A lot, a lot of people have this today. I, I'm young. I had no experience. Even though I had seven years of doing sysadmin work, no security experience. So I couldn't really jump into that. Um, I saw advertisements for jobs with the Secret Service. I started looking at that, but I was like, well, this is really not a special agent, but more of the, uh, the, the standard law enforcement. So like, oh, that's not what I want. FBI was hiring, looking for IT people. I applied and went through an entire crazy process and was accepted as a, um, a candidate for a special agent. And uh, this was went really quick because it only took nine months from zero to going through all of their steps. And if you're familiar with that, there's a tremendous amount of uh, processes that you have to go through and tests and exams and interviews. But I made it through all that and I'm sitting at the academy and I'm there for about two weeks and I get hurt. So an old injury that came back up happened during PT. And at the time, I had a young son uh, trying to figure out what I want to do. The injury, the healing would have taken longer. It wasn't like a quick heal. So it was more like a six-month process. So I was like, well, this is I can't really do this to my family. So I dropped out. And I was bummed, defeated, all of those things. You feel like a failure. Everything is, is going through your head on this. Although I've been doing well in other areas, this really hit me hard. And I started to, you know, like I still want to do something. So I actually volunteered at the, uh, through InfoGuard, through my contacts at InfoGuard, I volunteered at the uh, local um, FBI field office and they were standing up a malware range. I had not, no idea about this, but I could jam out some technical things. Like if you say, I need to build up a server, this was pre-cloud stuff. So you're doing it all physical, bare bone hardware, spinning up images, tearing them down. So I made an entire range to do malware analysis. And this was uh, for like a uh, static and dynamic analysis. So we could launch malware in a uh, safe environment, capture all the data, do some analysis. It was really, really interesting to see. So I volunteered on my own time, did this once a week for probably a year going up there and had a lot of, uh, met a lot of people. And it really helped push me into the security field indirectly. But it just took my effort to actually go and push forward on that. And during this time, you know, I took a couple of SANS classes and everything. And I finally was able to break out of the technical IT world, and I got a job in GRC. I'm not sure if people still call this, but government governance, risk, and compliance. So at a bank, suit and tie. <laughs> I got I broke into security, and I'm doing compliance, and it wasn't bad. Um, you know, I got to see now what does corporate life think of security. And it was all textbook security is what I worked on. So I'm helping projects, helping teams, you know, interpret policy and rules into their implementation of whatever they're doing. So, you know, take it what it is. You know, there, there's a definitely a role for compliance, for sure. I'm not going to say it's not important, but uh, it's not for everyone. And, not, and especially if you really are wanting to get your hands dirty um, and, and that's the area you want to focus on. So I did that for a while and... That was my break, but my real break was I found a niche that needed um, people. So again, like if you take this for today, this is something that really helps. Um, the team needed some web app testing um, support. I had very little web app testing support, but I could do some cross-site scripting. I could do some rudimentary SQL injection. I could do the basic, basic things that you might learn like from a SANS class. 
And that was enough. And I was like, wow, I'm really terrible at this. But I shined because they the bar was so low. And that sounds terrible to say, but it got me in the door. And now I am hands-on. I'm not doing gover- doing uh, compliance anymore. I'm hands-on. I'm actually doing application security testing. So I'm building up security tests. So I don't just want to do the test. I build up whole processes. It's just something I did for my IT days. So I build out like a range, a tool set. And I wanted to have consistent processes to go through this to be efficient. And that chain, that was when I really started to excel. And I said, okay, now I can start to do this. Um, so I worked through this, but that whole FBI failure left a, like a void, which I don't know if this was good or bad, but it left one thinking, oh, I need, I failed. So I need to figure out how to succeed. And that drove me down this government route and a, um, information assurance job opened up with the government. So the government was actually in the DOD, I argued they lowered the bar because getting into the DOD was hard as a civilian, um, employee, not, not as a contractor, but actually, a, a government employee. But they, they were really desperate to bring in IT people from the outside. Things were struggling. So they brought me in. This was maybe 2008, nine, somewhere around that time, I guess. I have to see the exact time. But somewhere in, the, in that 2000, uh, mid-2000s, um, I got in, and I'm back to the compliance side. And, oh, my gosh, the government, the DOD, was – I felt like I went back in time. I was like, what the heck is going on? Um, you know, this is at things have changed now, but at that time it was just a self-licking ice cream cone of where everyone stayed in its own piece. There was no looking outside in the world to understand what's going on. The problems they had were self-imposed and the solutions at the time were compliance. Compliance equaled security at the time. And it wasn't even great compliance. (laughs) Um, everything was bad. And I was like, it was miserable because I tried to move forward and I realized you cannot turn the ship very fast. And I learned like, wow, this is a crazy thing. So I was just, it was defeating to be honest. And that's terrible to say, but uh, I had a lot of passion, drive, want to do great things. And I realized that is a tough world to have that in. Um, And I was about to leave that. And a buddy of mine said, hey, there's this local uh, group, they do red teaming. And I was fortunate enough to be where I was working that there's only a handful of DOD red teams. And I was in a location that, needed help. And I, I found my home. They, they brought me in. I could do some things. It was just, it was one of the most amazing times I could have to grow as a, as a, as someone, because it was a lot of people call the golden age of red teaming because the time was so desperate and needed the processes, what was going on, the vulnerabilities, the flaws, there was just so, it was just ripe for everything. So luck had a lot to do. Luck and timing had a lot to do with my career pieces. But if I look back, I see all the things I've done up to this point so that when opportunity knocked, I was able to jump on that. And as soon as I did this, it just flourished. And I was uh, lucky enough to not just talk about security, such as when you look in the compliance side, and and this is not an insult to anyone who does this, but a lot of the people who are doing this did not have hands-on outside of a classroom. So they have a lot of theoretical knowledge. I got to be the person that says, okay, Joe, just get on the keyboard and do all the things. And the first time you sit down and your job is to break into the network, but not just break in and and break in, but you're breaking in, you're going to establish long-term persistence. You're going to live on this network for, you know, a week, two weeks, a month, three months, whatever it is. Everything changes about what you think about how a threat operates. And I really started to begin and understand threat operations. 
And I was lucky enough to actually be able to do these tests on live real world production networks. So it wasn't just pretend range stuff or classroom. This was real. And um, I was very fortunate that this, this happened to me. So I got to do this, got to do all kinds of crazy things. Yes, I was still in the government and you still had all that overhead of silly government stuff, which can be draining. But I did this for uh, several, several years. And I'm actually, you do get, it's kind of strange how no matter what you're doing, especially if you're hungry, you get burned out. And even though you're doing amazing, crazy stuff, I'm actually sitting in Hawaii on a three-week-long uh, second part of a red team engagement. So I've already been grinding away at something for multiple weeks, crazy hours, just long days, just grind, hack, hack, hack. And it sounds fun, but that can get grueling and grinding. And I'm in Hawaii, and um, this, this <laughs> the lead out there actually says this. He says, uh, how did he put it? Um, he says, Hey, Hey, I know we're here. We're doing some testing. There's a light of on the, there's a light at the end of this tunnel, but there's no beach on it. And the person was basically saying, yeah, you're in Hawaii, but I think you're in, not going to get any time off to do anything enjoyable. And it just, just, just cut you at your knees. Not that we had time. We were still working, but, uh, there was, you know, a day of a break and like relax could have been nice. Anyways, all of this was just very de defeating as we're doing stuff. Really cool work. I mean, this particular one was really, really, really good. Um, that had some really, really good impacts uh, that I could be something I can personally be really, really proud about. But um, me and my buddy were talking like, hey, you want to start a company? Kind of joking. And over the next three weeks, we sat in the hotel, like a little conference room and built out our business plan. And our company, Menace, which is what you well, you can't see that there, but that little poster you can see, Philip, behind me, that was my first, my first company that I did. Oh, cool. And myself and my partner, James, said, hey, we're going to start a company. And we just built the entire plan in those three weeks while, after working all day. And just um, when we got back, we came up with the time to unplug. And within the next like two or three months, we were both out the door from our government jobs and running our company for full time. And just did this. And this was a, a red team consulting company. Um, so similar to a lot of the other companies you see. So we did this and we ran that for four years. And um, that was amazing to do. Um, during that time frame, um, while we were running this, it gave us a lot of different freedoms to do stuff. That's when I was able to, to make a request over to reach out to Ed Scotus to say, hey, I got this proposal to do a red teaming course. Uh, what do you think about that? And they said, oh, that's a good idea. Um, gave the proposal. He gave me the thumbs up. And I was like, whoa, this is, you're really going to say, yeah, let's move forward on this? And so we were starting with the two-day course. So myself and James created a red teaming course for SANS, which was really cool to do at the time. Um, and I taught, and I, while I was running my company, I taught that course for about two years. Um, so if you kind of think of what I just said, I said, I'm starting my own company. I'm running the SANS course and building it from scratch from all components, I did nothing but work for four years. And it was just tough. Like it was mentally tough family. It was really, really tough on the family. So all the freedoms and great things were really being pushed back on from the other side. So I actually, during this time, after four years, we were looking at how do we change? What do we do? Do we change our business model or whatever? We wound up reaching out to, um, to the team over Spectre Ops because I knew some of them. I knew Raphael Mudge who was working through this and 
he introduced me to the rest of the team. And we wound up after about, I think about seven or eight months after they started, we merged our company with them. So we were part of their second round after they brought their initial group in. We came in with Spectre Ops and brought my team in there. So we brought four people over and joined the Spectre Ops group to help uh, mitigate some of those challenges we had as a small company. And that's what we did there. And then at the same time, as that was going on, I get to Spectre Ops. I take a step back from Sands and I say, thank you, but no thank you. Uh, I, this is just not worth the time and effort that I'm working on. Um, I was impatient and I wanted to be, you know, certified SANS instructor. I never was certified, but I was teaching and doing all these things. And that's a whole different conversation. Um, but, um, so I had to just say, Hey, thanks. No, thanks. And, and pass that course along. Um, and instead we just took all that material because our intellectual property and we wrote a book. Um, as you can see, I got a stack here. That was my remaining stack that I have not <laughs> been able to give away because we don't get to go in conferences in person. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, so we did that. And um, so I've got to have this nice, uh, own my own company. I'm working with Spectre Ops now. I kind of try to take some of the stress off by not doing the SANS training as well. But um, one thing I never accounted for is having been starting with joining with another company that was still fledgling. I basically was in startup mode for about seven years because I ran my company for four and then I stayed with Spectre Ops for about almost three. And that was just really, really tough. So the consulting life was grinding me down, nothing against what we were doing at Spectre Ops, nothing against the team out there, but I was traveling. And if you were consulting, you know, you're going to travel. And I was working 50 to 70% on the road. And I just said, I want to take a break. And I uh, left Spectre Ops and I went to um, AWS as their red team lead. And not, not this isn't a, hate AWS is easier, but I went back to an internal team where the pressures and day-to-day -day life was reasonable and kind of boring. I, I hate to say it, but that's, it's, it's way different from consulting because you're constantly moving from one thing to the next and to the next. And I really wanted it to escape and do that. And that was one of the best moves I ever did later in my career. So what I learned throughout this whole time was you don't have to be happy with where you are. You need to be content with where you are, but you've got to look at, you know, what kind of things from physical and mental health are these career changes doing to you? And you don't always have to be out there pushing everything. And that break for, to AWS, again, it sounds like I just went and did an easy job because it was not. It was a really, really good job. And I really enjoyed being out there, still keep in touch with everyone out there. But it was a, it was the needed time I needed for a break. And uh, that helped me tremendously. And I only left because uh, I saw something shiny, and it's my habit, is um, with Raphael Mudge, when he sold um, Cobalt Strike over to Help Systems, he kind of went through a transition over a year, and then they were looking for someone to help backfill um, part of his roles. And that role gave me the uh, opportunity to re-engage with the community and do a lot of work that uh, I kind of missed that I wasn't doing at AWS. So I said, sure, I'll come over there, and I kind of... I uh, joined Help Systems as the tech director so I can help um, work with a really, really good team to to work on a product. So now instead of just working on internally on red team testing, now I get to shift over and focus on a product space, which I never really uh, done as much in the past. So that was really, really good. And that's been up to the last six months or so. And that's been a really, really good challenge. 
That's awesome. So, yeah, I've been kind of following your career because I was kind of surprised to see when you were at AWS because I'd noticed that on LinkedIn that you were working at AWS and I actually yeah. messaged you around that time. So that's pretty cool. So I'm really sure, really imagine that your experience as a red teamer has really helped with the Cobalt Strike product since you've probably had a lot of hands-on yeah. experience with it. Yeah, I still consider myself as an operator. Um, so looking at this, starting, I would say starting when I worked with the DoD on the DoD red team, that's when things shifted to my, what I now don't call red teaming and what I now call threat-based testing. Uh, but that's really helped me understand this threat perspective of what's needed. And this is from uh, the in-depth technical side to the operational side. And, and there's a balance between both because I'm a really, really solid, solid operator. But if you said, are you the most detailed and best at building and creating all the you know, minute tools and stuff? I'll say no. But I'll go back to what I've really learned is, especially in the world that I've lived in, red teaming, it is very much a team sport. And learning to work and operate within a team and to be able to get great things done from groups of people is a, it's a skill and a talent in its own. And that's something I really, really enjoyed because it allows me to explore, work with other people who can do really amazing things and help encourage and push them to build um, you know, interesting tools, products, capabilities, whatever it is that helps the entire team. Um, and also learn how to um, spread that message and um, help give credit to that individual and to the team themselves. So that's just another another thing I've uh, gone through as I've, you know, become more of a lead throughout my career. So uh, since you've had, you know, since based on your career, how you got in and got to where you're at, and you've mentored and taught people, uh, what would you recommend for someone that wanted to become a red teamer, red team operator? So red teaming um, is a good long term goal. Um, don't be impatient. Fundamentally, everything is about understanding a problem set. What are you trying to solve? So anytime I, if you work in red teaming, um, you have to realize a couple things that's important. One, you don't have your own playground. You are a kid with really, really cool toys, but you've got to take them to someone else's house. You got to take them to someone else's playground to play. You know, that's, that's what you have. You can go in your own playground, but no one's going to listen and watch you because there's no value there. The reason you exist as a red teamer is you're part of the security testing community. So you got to have some sort of value. So you really have to understand that value. And I don't care what you do from a technical side. I don't care how advanced things are. If you can't play nicely or you don't know how to translate what you're doing into some business case, you're not going to be invited back to play. Um, and that's a really hard pill to, sw to, to swallow sometimes because um, – you just want to say, no, but listen to me. This is the technical thing. You're going to get breached. You're going to get hacked. And all of those things don't work if you cannot translate that over. So that's one of the biggest things I've seen so far. So what that really means is you've got to understand the problems that you're working on. And then you can start to say, okay, how do I bring this from a technical solution over to um, solve that problem? So it goes back to what I used to do in my normal um, IT problem solving days. Like that is been that set up so much foundations of just troubleshooting to under even troubleshooting, you know, business cases. It's the same thing. Oh, very cool. So as far as like a any kind of courses or anything like that, you'd recommend someone to start out with as far as trying to learn red teaming. So um, 
That's tough. So right now, there used to not be the case where there's any red teaming courses. And yes, I, I will say, you mentioned Spectre Ops. Spectre Ops um, has a great course on red team operations. Um, the uh, Zero Point Security has great training. 40 North with Chris Truncer has great training. So there's, if you see any of these trainings are typically offered at, offered at like Black Hat or something, or they do run them on their own. There's a lot of great red team courses. And what I would say is they're not beginning courses. Um, and, and there's two pieces of information, that you, two things that you need to learn when you're doing red teaming. One is you have to have a strong technical background of all of the things. And that means you've got to understand operating systems, not just one, but multiple. You need to understand the fundamentals and principles of how protocols work because you're going to have communications that are moving. You have to have understand pr fundamental principles of how processes execute because especially now today, our defensive side is really looking and shifted to the endpoint. So you're saying, okay, how do these processes, how do these things interact with this endpoint? So you have to have that knowledge. And then you have the other side, which is the operational side, is how do you actually run through and um, take all of these complex technical things and put them into a usable format? Eventually, you have to do something. You can't just talk about it and can't just do in-depth technical things. You eventually have to put your hands on the keyboard and exercise something. And that takes processes and discipline of understanding. So as far as these courses go, for red teaming specifically, most of those individuals who or most of the organizations who teach red teaming at San, um, I'm not saying uh, at the Black Hat and such do really, really well. Um, for more generalized security, and maybe SANS would get upset if I say that, I would say SANS is a good location for that. Um, but I would say this is kind of the uh, you know, mile wide, inch deep more approach from SANS. So it's very comprehensive across the board, but you're not going to see a lot of those principles. And um, the other thing is, hands-on. Um, that is going to be the best. Um, you got to work for a red team if you want to know red teaming. And that's a whole chicken before the egg thing or catch 22. It's like, well, how do I get a job in red teaming without it? Um, right now, fortunately, um, there's a lot of opportunities. Um, I would argue that if you have great communication skills and the right attitude, you can get a job in the space you're looking for. Uh, because the skills can be, the technical skills and such can be taught. But all of the other skills, the soft skills, the trying to de um, decompose uh, a client's needs into something that's actionable is something that can be harder to learn. Yeah, those are the soft skills are often overlooked. And that's one of the things, too. And he, I know when people want to get, in, get into pen testing, I think if you don't like writing reports, then that may not be the, <laughs> the best oh, area to be in. Yeah, you may not want to do that. And also... Um, I tell people, I said, if you can't be happy that when you do some great exploit, great hack, whatever it is, you high five the person next to you back in the day when we sat working with each other, if that's not enough, then this may not be for you. Because when you write those reports and do all this hard work and your organization internally or a client looks at it, so, oh, thanks, and then they file it and do nothing with it, you have to be happy with that. Because not everyone listens and takes your advice or does what they you think they should do. Again, this is not your playground. It's other people's playgrounds. So learning to operate within other people's playgrounds and being okay with their choices is fine. Now, as you mature, you become stronger in understanding how to influence that. And that's more of a skill. So I have tried to adapt that. And that's one of the things I really work on is instead of someone just putting the report on the shelf, I've learned it delivering 
this information in ways that try to influence change better. But it doesn't mean that anyone's going to listen to me. So that's important to understand. If you if that's important to you, then don't get into this field. Yeah, very, very, very good advice there. It's kind of interesting too the the uh, remediation piece too when you're doing pen tests or red teaming, and when you find some vulnerability and uh, they don't get it doesn't get remediated or they want to file risk acceptance. One of my favorite all time hacks from a web app pen test. I was able to get command line ac- access from a SQL injection vulnerability through the internet. And since it's on a dev server, the client filed a risk exception because it was a dev box. <laughs> yep. So some of those and things. That's, you got to be okay with doing that. And I'm going to, I don't know how popular this is, but sometimes I wonder, do people really want to be secure? And maybe I should not say that, but I say that in the actions that people take. Um, on the surface, everyone's like security is number one, but then when you see the mitigations and the actions and what's going on, you see it's not number one. Um, and that's okay. You know, again, it's their playground. It's their decision to do this. So you have to be okay when, you know, whatever it is you've discovered is not fixed and you just have to be at peace with that. I tell everyone, you know, enjoy what you're doing, get what you can out of it from a technical perspective, make yourself better, provide a good service to the organization you're working for. And that's all you can ever hope for. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty interesting how that works because like you mentioned, some companies say that security is type priority, but you can tell when you find things that they really wished you hadn't found and, Sometimes it's just a checkbox. They're doing this because of PCI compliance or. Yep. Yep. Which goes back to good planning. And and that gets back into the communication skills. Because if you understand it up front, I would argue that you should know all of that and what the results and why you're doing a test in the first place. Um, One thing that I see over and over, and and it's happened um, actually forever, is when I see communication starting with an organization and someone comes to you and says, hey, I want a red team. Um, and the consulting team or whoever's working this immediately jumps in, okay, our red team engagements are typically three weeks and we have two people or three people or whatever it is. They jump into this technical solution and all they're taking is customer says, I want a red team engagement. And those who do better are the ones who stop and say, okay, what are your goals? What are you trying to achieve? Forget about this red teaming thing. What do you want to do with this when we're done? What is the expected output that you want? So when you can start to have those conversations, again, those soft skills, those communication skills, you can actually start to influence that organization because I feel like the entire engagement process is an education session. So not just the testing, but actually to educate your internal or external customer on this threat-based approach. So those are things that you really can start. You can excel uh, quite well if you can start to engage and, um, you know, fill, build that relationship with that uh, client. Yeah. And definitely you're doing your customer a better service when you're helping them define their goals, because not all customers really know all the different components and what they really need to do. But if you can guide them through that, then they're going to have faith in you and you just kind of become that mm-hmm. trust, trusted advisor. Yeah. That, that is a, a huge component to this. So I know we, everyone wants to say, I want to get into red teaming, and hacking or pen testing or whatever it is, um, that's only half the pieces. That is technical debt that you need to go, you know, pay down. You need to learn those skills. And uh, so, speaking strictly technical, 
I would say you need to understand this stuff and not just what you learned in a course that's a definition, but you, the better you understand the fundamental principles about why something is a flaw um, and, and the SQL injection thing is, is a big piece that I always get into. And I see people it's like, well, it's input validation. And if you stop at input validation, then I would say you have not internalized what the real flaws are. You need to go past that and say, what does that mean? And, and what do these components mean? So you can actually take these flaws, these ideas, um, and break those down so you really, really understand what's going on. Because when you understand them, then you can actually have real advice for fixing them. You can actually test them effectively. And you can explain and um, what's really wrong because what's re you never want to be on the side where you do a test. You make advice to fix something, and what you advised was wrong or incomplete. Um, you want that to be thorough. So when you dive into these technical areas, really, you need to have a passion to understand really what's going on, so that you can uh, you can truly get to the heart of whatever that flaw is you're trying to work through. So we're getting down towards the end of the, the show. Is there any advice you'd like to give that we on things we haven't touched on? Uh, the biggest thing I can say is um, you have two ways of doing this world, you, uh, of doing this job. You can do it as a job, and there's nothing wrong with that. You go to work, you do your thing, you don't really push really hard. And again, this is not bad. But if you really want to excel and you're trying to push in, you've got to have passion. And those that I see who have a passion and a love for technology are the ones who excel at this. And not just excel, they thrive at this. Because it's even if you're new and you're super excited, I just learned about this new thing. And the whole rest of the world may know about it. But because it's exciting to you, you're going to have support by the community and you will really work hard to, uh, to push forward. Um, those that succeed really find this as their, sometimes they do it as a hobby. This is their, instead of like going, hey, I'm going to jump on my Xbox, I am going to go you know, write some code and really just dive into this and like figure out these puzzles. So that passion for technology is probably the biggest thing you can um, have to push yourself forward. Yeah, great advice. Uh, thanks for, for joining us, Joe. It's an honor to have you on the show. No, I appreciate it. Thanks, Philip. Thanks, everyone, for joining, and we'll see you on the next episode. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hacker Factory podcast with Philip Wiley. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.